Tonight's Bible reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'll give you a few minutes if you're in the auditorium to open up your Bible. If you're at home, run down to your bedroom, grab your Bible and run back to your TV. (laughs) To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampposts. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown wary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And give us the ability to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the year 2000, our church was visited by a mystery worshipper. Old-timers may remember this story. Anyone here in 2000? Just give me a... Yeah, there's a few of you. That's good. Well, for the rest of you, let me catch you up on the story. A mystery worshipper is someone who turns up to your church for the purpose of giving it a review on a website. A bit like a food critic turning up to a restaurant unannounced uh, and then giving it a rating on Yelp or Urban Spoon or whatever. Uh, Except instead of restaurants, of course, they were rating churches on a Christian website that was set up for this purpose. Uh, Back before you could do that on Google as a Google review. It seems far more normal now, but it was a novelty back in 2000. Uh, And yes, that's the actual graphic from their website. But um, these mystery worshippers were given a set of questions to answer in order to rate each church. Interested in seeing how we went? Well, let me read to you some of the answers uh, that our mystery reviewer gave us. Although, as I do that, I want you to pay a little bit more attention to the questions they were asking. uh, And you'll see why in a minute. First question, did anyone welcome you personally? I got a smile from the usher handing me a news sheet and they showed me to my seat. Good tick for the Connect team, very good. Was your pew comfortable? It was a modern style padded pew which was reasonably comfortable. I'd say I'd probably get a different rating now after 20 years of your collective backsides wearing it down. But I I get to stand up tonight so this is good. What books did the congregation use during the service? Uh, There was a limited number of Bibles in the pews and I didn't get one. Um, this is before smartphones, okay? Uh, for the youngsters here, uh, there was a time when you could actually read your Bible without seeing social media notifications in the margins. So. Was the worship stiff upper lip, happy, clappy, or what? Uh, a relaxed, informal style with lots of spontaneous comments by those up front. People were informally dressed, although the music and format of the service were fairly traditional. Uh, this was the morning service, of course, we're way cooler, right? Exactly... How long was the sermon? Uh, 26 minutes, uh, which funnily enough, by the way, is my uh, ideal sermon length. So you can start your watches and see if I managed to adhere to that tonight. 
Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good was the preacher? They gave an 8, a good presentation, but he should have finished after 21 minutes when he'd reached a good practical conclusion. Now, we've debated this at length, but we believe it was Ange preaching that morning, but um, <laughs> I think he disagrees. What happened when you hung around after the service looking lost? Well, after a few moments of awkwardness standing alone, I was approached by a lady who introduced me to others and to the minister. Good to see Ange made up for those extra five minutes. Um, one of them invited me to the adjoining hall for coffee. How would you describe the after-service coffee? Well, I had tea, coffee and tea were available. Both were served in a friendly manner in China mugs. The tea was hot. And you get the idea. Now, although this survey might give you a little bit of an idea about, about our church, I think it tells you even more about the mentality of the people who set up this church rating website. I mean, it's nice to get a Bible and hot tea and sit in well-padded pews listening to 21-minute sermons, but is that really the kind of thing that you want to rate a church on? don't know about you, but if I ever decided to be arrogant enough as to give a church a rating or to write a review on a website, I'd have a completely different set of questions. And if you've read the reviews that Jesus gives each of the seven churches in Asia Minor, that series uh, that we're starting this week in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, if you've taken a look at how Jesus rates those seven churches, you get the very strong impression he's got a completely different set of questions on his report card too. He's asking questions like, is the church faithfully adhering to the truth and rejecting false teaching? Big tick for Ephesus, as we'll hear tonight. Uh, room for improvement in Pergamum and Thyatira. Is the church enduring suffering in imitation of Christ? Jesus says, good on you, Philadelphia, you've done well. And Smyrna, take note, because you'll be doing that module next semester. Is the church showing love to one another and to the world? Ephesus, your grades have slipped. What's happened to you? Is the church spiritually alive? Sardis, this is your final warning before you get expelled. And is the church useful in God's service? Laodicea, I'm looking at you, says Jesus. But before we get stuck into those letters over the next six weeks and the first letter this week, you've got to ask, how does a church get a report card from Jesus anyway? Right? How did these letters come about? Uh, and the short answer, well, short at least for a Bible college lecturer, the short answer is that John was killed and exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, kind of like Tom Hanks in Castaway, but without even a volleyball to make friends with. Um, and while he's there, he's given a vision by God. He's given a revelation of what's going on behind the scenes. The spiritual reality that lies behind our material world. He's showing how the world looks from God's point of view. Where God is on his throne, in control of his world. And everyone and everything who opposes him is on borrowed time. And John is told to write down what he saw and to send it to seven churches in what was known as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. John says in chapter 1, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on the scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
But before we get to the main part of this vision, this revelation that Jesus dictates, uh, that John sees, Jesus dictates a letter to each of these seven churches. They're kind of like a report card, a user review, where they're commended for some things and they're rebuked for others. Where they're warned of the consequences that await them if they don't listen to Jesus' rebuke. And where they're given an encouraging promise for those who do listen and endure until the end. And just as each of the churches gets to kind of overhear the letters to the other six, and therefore may be challenged in the, themselves in the process, just as those churches got to do that, so we here in Sydney in the 21st century get to overhear these letters too. We get to listen to them and think, okay, it wasn't written to me, but to what extent does this describe our church? To what extent does this describe me? Because what those seven churches were going through, we have quite a bit in common. Uh, maybe not the threat of physical persecution from the local synagogue or from the Roman Empire. Uh, those belong to a different era, and there are no equivalents for us in our part of the world today. But the biggest threat, uh, at least as far as Jesus was concerned, the biggest threat to them is one that still very much applies to us today. And that is the danger of compromising our values, compromising our behaviours to match the dominant culture around us. The threat of growing weary of being different and caving in little by little to the subtle pressure, the relentless pressure to fit in with our world, to be like everyone else and to join in with its idolatry. So that's why we're looking at these seven letters over the coming weeks as a way of kind of reviewing our performance as a church and how we're going about living up to the values and to the behaviours that are expected of the people of God. So let's dive in and have a look at the letter to Ephesus. Uh, and we begin with this uh, letter to Ephesus, which itself starts with a reminder of who it is that's conducting this performance review. It's not John. It's not some mystery worshipper on a website. No, it's Jesus himself who's described in this way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right, now, apart from the impressive fact that Jesus doesn't need to use oven mitts, what's so significant about holding seven stars in his right hand? Uh, what's he doing walking around in what sounds like a tacky homeware shop? Well, thankfully, back in chapter 1, he's already explained the symbolism for us. He says in chapter 1, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of these seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, or kind of the messengers, the representatives of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, they are the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is the one who holds the churches in his hand. He protects them. He cares for them. He is the one who's in charge of their destiny. Not Rome or anything else that might be opposed to them. He's the one who's in control. And what's more, did you notice he's walking among them? He's not some kind of distant God who works on the top floor and only comes down occasionally to yell at people and conduct intimidating performance reviews. No, he's right there on the shop floor day to day with his staff. The risen Lord Jesus walks among his churches. He is here doing life with us. 
And it's this Jesus who addresses his church. Sovereign Lord, yet deeply involved with his people. So what does he say to his church in Ephesus? Well, clearly Jesus has done one of those how to give criticism workshops because he starts and ends by commending them for what they're doing well. Have a look at the the good news part of the sandwich. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then having delivered the rebuke in verses 4 and 5 that we'll get to later, he returns to some more positive stuff in verse 6. He says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So overall, sounding like a pretty good church, isn't it? Hardworking, prepared to suffer for God, rather than being in it just when it's convenient. And clearly they're very careful about both doctrine and behavior. They tested false teachers and booted them out. They rejected the practices of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says is a good thing. Note, by the way, it's the practices they hate, not the Nicolaitans themselves. So remember that bit for later. Uh, In fact, we have no idea who the Nicolaitans really were or what they believed. But we see them showing up next week in the letter to Pergamum as well, where they appear to have had more success in leading some people astray. But not here in Ephesus. The Ephesians consistently reject false doctrine, and they reject the sinful behaviours that false doctrine encourages. Now, I might be biased, but I think Jesus would say very similar things to our church here. In a world that constantly pressures the church to revise its teachings to something more palatable, more acceptable to the current age, we stand firm. In a world that believes that all religions are valid, uh, that considers it outrageous for one faith to claim exclusive truth, we hold to the uniqueness of Christ. That there is no other name under heaven given by which we may be saved. That Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. That no one comes to God except through him. In a world that finds the idea of sin objectionable, and the threat of judgment unenlightened, and the notion of sacrifice absurd, no, we hold that the death of Jesus was in our place. His blood shed for us to pay the penalty for our sin. The wrath of God poured out on sin in the form of his son so that we might go free. In a world that decides morality by popular vote rather than by reference to any kind of absolute standard, that thinks the Bible's teaching on sexuality is simply a reflection of a a bygone culture and that it's an affront to human freedom. We hold that God created us to live in a pattern of relationships that ultimately for our benefit. We reject the lie that if it feels right and we're not hurting anyone else, then we can do it. I could go on, but you get the idea, right? In a godless world, we stand firm in the truth. And we aspire to the kinds of behaviours that flow out of that truth, just like the Ephesian church. But that's not the whole story. Because in between these commendations come some very strong words of judgment. Have a look at verse 4 with me. He says, Yet I hold this against you. 
you've forsaken the love that you had at first. They've lost that loving feeling, or maybe more accurately, they're not performing loving actions. Since in the very next verse, they're commanded to repent and do the things they did at first. Not feel the way they used to feel, but do what they used to do. This is all about love in action. Now, it could be love for God that's in view here. But most commentators think that John is talking about love for one another. After all, love for one another is a key theme in all of John's writings. Uh, In one of his letters, he says, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Quoting the words of Jesus in John's Gospel. There's also an interesting connection with Jesus' own warnings about the coming future. When Jesus said, many false prophets will appear, deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And you can see the Ephesian church, they've, they've managed to avoid the first danger, that of being deceived by false teachers. But in doing so, they'd fall into the second error, a lack of love. Isn't that often the case? Churches that are really good at holding to the truth and upholding right standards of behavior, they're the same churches that can also be unloving and judgmental. Whether that's toward outsiders or even towards their own fellow believers. The the very thing they're good at can actually sow the seeds of their failure. Because it's hard, isn't it, to be both truthful and loving at the same time. It's hard to speak the truth in love as Paul said some decades earlier in his letter to the Ephesian church. It's hard to hate the practices of those living in rebellion against God, but still love the people. And harder still to explain that nuance to a secular world that equates loving someone with accepting all of their behavior. It is hard to speak the truth in love. And the Ephesian church was struggling. Think about it for a moment. How do we go on that? What would Jesus' assessment of our church be? Of you. Uh, And what about showing love within the church? Uh, Because he spoke before about the danger of the church kind of adopting the worldview of the dominant culture. So in this way, are we in danger of reflecting the selfishness of our age that tells us to look after me and my family first? to fit my own oxygen mask before helping others. I mean, these days we're so time poor, sure, we might think about helping someone else in the church who's struggling, but but then my family will suffer. And I've barely got time to cook meals for us, let alone for someone else. Or I'd make that phone call to see how they're going, but I need some me time first or I'm going to burn out. We might intend to look out for others, But simply the pace of life means we never quite get around to it. Have we almost imperceptibly forsaken what for Jesus was meant to be the key characteristic of his church? Where he says in John's Gospel, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if in fact you do love one another. That's the challenge. So if we think this is an issue, Jesus tells us in the next verse how to get back on track. 
It says in verse 5, Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. It tells the Ephesian church to remember how they used to be as a way of motivating them of you know, how to be in the future, a way of motivating them to turn it around. Uh, this is a classic motivation strategy in the ancient world where you remind someone of their own example and you simply urge them to live up to it. Uh, fourth century preacher John Chrysostom says, powerful is the exhortation from deeds already done. For he who begins a work ought to go forward and add to it. And he who encourages does thus especially encourage them from their own example. Not a bad idea, is it? Think back to the times when your experience of church community really worked. Uh, maybe a time when you were struggling and your church family rallied around you. Or a time when you've been part of the support crew for someone else. Can you think of one? I'm going to get you to do something a little bold right now. I'm actually going to get you to talk to one another. You remember how to do that? It's been some months, but yeah, you'll get back on it. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you. Introduce yourself if you have to, particularly behind the mask. It could get awkward. Uh, And tell them briefly of one time that you experienced the love and care of a Christian community. Either where you were the one being cared for or you were part of the, the, the team that was caring for others can't think of one that's okay, let the other person talk and tell you, right? One time you experience the love and care of a Christian community. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. If it's just been the first person talking, now swap over to the second person. Okay, so there's no, no shortage of words there, right? You, you could all either think of one or at least hear someone talking about that. That's good. You can continue those conversations later if we want to talk about that. But the reason we did that, remember what we just talked about? To remind ourselves of what it is that we're aiming for. Jesus is saying, look, don't you want to experience that again? Don't you want that to be what characterizes this church here at Nawi, this evening service community? Don't you want it to be what characterizes your life? So Jesus is saying, if you need to, repent and do those things that you did at first. Because, he says, the consequences are serious, far more serious than any earthly performance review. He says, if you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, in isolation, the threat sounds almost comical, doesn't it? No, not the lampstand, don't touch the Except what it symbolizes is deadly serious, isn't it? It's the removal of a church. Let's be clear, this isn't about a believer losing their salvation. It's about the removal of a church. Either literally it ceases to exist, like it seems happened with the church in Laodicea, or maybe God just leaves it to itself and continues doing his work around them rather than through them. Either way, it's not a good prospect. I was told a story of a church in which an incident happened 80 years ago. Apparently, there was a a big tree on the church's property, and one of the branches was overhanging into the neighbor's yard, dropping leaves all the time, and the neighbor complained, and so one of the church members, thinking they were doing the right thing, chopped off the offending branch. Now, problem was, this tree had been planted a long time ago in memory of another member's grandfather, and so began a long war between these two members and their families, their children, and now their children's children. 
Three generations of hostility with both sides opposing whatever the other suggests on principle. And the church is there wondering why they haven't seen a single convert in decades. Maybe it's because their lampstand's been removed. If we don't show love for one another, we stop being useful to God in his work of restoring his world. I actually wonder how many churches may have had their lampstand removed and haven't even noticed. No longer used by God because of their lack of love for one another. Jesus says, whoever has, he- has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying this is important stuff. That was the bad news. This is the good news next. A promise. A promise that's far better than any performance bonus your boss can offer you after a favorable review. Jesus says this, he says, look, to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life appears again at the end of Revelation, in John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. You might remember the last time we saw it in the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 3 where the tree of life was being guarded by angels with flaming swords as Adam and Eve were sent out of paradise, kept away from the tree so they wouldn't eat of it and and live forever. But now, Jesus holds out the promise of a new Eden, where we can eat from the tree, symbolizing the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus. Where the leaves from the tree of life are described as being for the healing of the nations, all the nations who've now been brought into the people of God. This is a promise to remind us of the eternal benefits of living the way God intended his people to live. The benefits of resisting the self-centeredness of our world and instead being radically different, instead standing out in how we show love towards one another. In fact, that's the ultimate aim of the rest of John's vision from Revelation chapter 4 onwards. You know, like the freaky bit. All those images of thrones and angels and faithful martyrs and blasphemous beasts and seals and trumpets and lakes of fire and gold-paved cities. All of it boils down to this. A vision of how the world looks from God's perspective. Encouraging us to persevere. Showing how those who oppose God and oppose his people are on a short leash, are on borrowed time. And reminding us of the glorious future that awaits those of us who are God's people. Each of the letters to the seven churches ends with the same challenge. Which future do you want? The good one, right? The one that ends with the tree of life rather than your church's lampstand being removed. So live now as individuals. Live now as a church in a way that's in tune with God. Don't forsake the love that you had at first. Repent if that's what you need to do and do the things you did at first. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that we're somehow made right with God by how we show love to one another? Of course not. But do we demonstrate that we are people who've been made right with God through faith in Christ, do we demonstrate that by how we treat one another? Jesus says, you bet we do. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What's the mark? The mark is that you love one another. Now, I could just leave it there as a kind of general appeal to show love to one another. 
But Jesus is pretty concrete, isn't he? He says, do the things you did at first. Not about changing your thinking or your feelings tonight so much as actually doing stuff. So I want to give you a couple of minutes, since I think I've only hit the 24-minute mark, so we've got a couple to go. You've got two minutes, actual minutes, not worship leader minutes, two actual minutes to think about one way that you could show love in a practical sense. It might be an act of service, might be an encouraging word, might be a phone call to someone who needs it. But do something right now. Right now, that something could just simply be setting a reminder on your phone to do something about it when it's a more appropriate time in the next few days. It could mean straight after the last song, walking over to someone you know needs support. Walking outside and making a phone call before you chat to your friends. I mean, imagine what it would be like if all 100 or so people here, if everyone watching online, if we all over the next few days did something that showed the love of Jesus to someone else. Maybe by that, everyone would then know that we are his disciples. So you have two minutes now before the band leads us in the final song. Use them to his glory.